Good morning to you. you. Good morning. Good morning to you. you. Good morning. Good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning. Good morning to you. You. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. You. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. And many more. Good morning, good morning, good morning, and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host, Shante Charles. I hope that you're having a great and wonderful day. Today is Theology Thursday, Thinking Thursday, so let's get started. As promised, we are back in the book Carved in Ebony. This is Black Women's History Month, so this is a perfect book to finish up. Uh, as we are in Black Women's History Month. Today we're going to be talking about Lucy Craft Laney. And um, as we read her story, we may not get through all of it. It's okay if we finish it in uh, two parts. But I believe we have, let's see, one, two, I think two, 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 two. Yes. Two more women to read about. So we hopefully should be able to finish up uh, this month. Also, we're going to take a pause and read a little bit from Black Theology and Black Power by James H. Cohn. This is this book is essential reading for anyone who is Black. Black in America, um, Black Christians, um, people of, of faith of any kind, really. Um, this is essential to understanding the, the struggle and the movement here in America in terms of faith for Black people. So this is a part of our history, and I highly recommend that you get your hands on a copy and read it for yourself. But we are going to hop into his chapter, chapter six, entitled Revolution, Violence, and Reconciliation in Black Theology. We are going to read a short excerpt from this on today. But let's start with the life of Lucy Craft Laney. This is what she had to say from her own mouth. There is plenty of work for all who have the proper conception of the teacher's office, who know that all men are brothers, God being their common father. But the educated Negro woman must teach the quote-unquote black babies. She must come forward and inspire our men and boys to make a successful onslaught upon sin, shame, and crime. The writer says, for most of my teaching career, I worked in predominantly white schools. I'll share in the next chapter how that job has had its ups and downs, but suffice it to say, I felt called to that environment, but eventually the unique challenges wore me down to the point of quitting. I loved my students despite our disparate heritage. But there was nothing quite like the one year that I spent teaching at an inner city school 
in Minneapolis's diverse Phillips neighborhood. Now, I too myself am an educator, but I've had the privilege of being able to teach um, not just in predominantly black environments, but also predominantly white environments. Um, I've taught at-risk youth. I've also taught exceptionally wealthy youth at a private school. Um, I've taught youth that have had um, neurodivergent challenges, ADHD, ADD, dyslexia, autism. Um, so I have a, a little bit of a wealth of experience in all those areas. But I will say there is something about, there's a beauty about teaching in a predominantly black space. So let's see what she has to say. It was my first time standing in a classroom and staring out at a sea of faces that reflected my own heritage back to me. I felt a certain freedom in those rooms that hasn't been replicated since. Pregnant with my firstborn son for the bulk of that year, my normal fun-loving laid-back teaching style took on a no-nonsense edge. More than one eighth grade boy remarked, dang, Miss Holmes, you sound like my mama. Even though most of the students we served were um, persons of color or black, most of the faculty were white. For many of the students, my English class and my friend's Spanish class would be the only high school experiences they would have with black teachers. And up until that point in my life, it had been my only experience teaching a majority black student body. So when February rolled around, I decided to dedicate Black History Month to my favorite period in black American history, the Harlem Renaissance. Now we have that in common. Um, as an art educator, I love, love, love to introduce students to the Harlem Renaissance period. But what I found out in my teaching on the Harlem Renaissance period is there are entire states, there are entire counties and school districts that um, don't see the Harlem Renaissance as important to the curriculum for art. And I didn't find that out until I did a entire curriculum unit on the Harlem Renaissance. So we cannot assume that our children are going to get certain kinds of education. Um, we have to actually question and ask. And even as educators, you know, if you're not presenting it sometimes in your own space, children won't get it um, because it may not be a part of your state's curriculum at all, the general curriculum. Um, so for me, I thought that was very interesting even though I was working at a all predominantly, I won't say all, but predominantly black school, 97% black student body, my students had no idea what the Harlem Renaissance was and they were middle school students. Um, so that was shocking to me, but through my coursework, right? And through my curriculum, they were introduced to black artists, black musicians, black painters, black sculptors, to know the impact that we had on early 19th, early 20th century America. So that was very eye-opening for them that, wait a minute, we were doing all of these things during that time? Yes, we were. We weren't just being terrorized in the South. We were also creating and thinking and dreaming 
in writing and empowering ourselves in our own communities. And that makes a difference in how you view your own history. Now back to the readings. My second born son is named Langston, she says. So it should come as no surprise that the Harlem Renaissance, Langston Hughes's heyday, has always mystified me. Part of the reason the autobiography of Malcolm X resonated with me so much at age 16 was because of the peek into Harlem's art scene. Zora Neale Hurston, Claude McKay, Nella Larson, and a host of other Black artists launched into the North during the heart of the Great Migration. And when their pens hit paper, it was magic. Well, if you're talking about Great Migration, we can't just assume that everybody knows what that is. So what is the Great Migration? The Great Migration was when millions of Black people were leaving the South migrating to another part of the United States for a better life. And they were migrating because they were trying to migrate away from the extreme levels of terrorism that was happening in the South. Not saying, okay, as is misunderstood, not saying that they did not encounter things in the North, not saying that there wasn't lynching happening in the North, there was, not saying that there wasn't racism happening in the North, there was, but it was a little bit less of it happening. I'm not going to say it wasn't happening at all because that's not true. So the Great Migration pushed Black people from the South to the North looking for better jobs, looking to move away from an agricultural society, which in hindsight, a lot of Black people are moving back to understanding their agricultural roots for health reasons. But it pushed them away from an agricultural society that they had known from their ancestors, right, who came over here to do the agricultural parts unwillingly for America. So it pushed them away from agricultural society into industrial society or factory working, industry, business, um, mechanics, all of that, right? Trains, planes, automobiles, industry. So that was what was happening. They were launching into the North during the heart of the Great Migration. And when their pens hit paper, it was magic, she says. I enjoyed introducing every one of my classes from my rowdy seventh and eighth graders to my too cool for school seniors to the works of the Harlem Renaissance. Though the school was majority black, the curriculum was sometimes glaringly white. And it was the first time they had learned a whole unit about people who looked like them. I hope it was an amazing experience for them, but I know it was an amazing experience for me. As those young minds of the Harlem Renaissance migrated from the South to the North and started to make their mark on the world, their Southern roots made a decisive impact on who they would become as individuals and as artists. And one woman cultivated those roots the same way that, I'm hope, that I hope I'm cultivating the roots of my own students. Her name was Lucy Craft Laney. So we're going to read just about her humble beginnings, and then we'll stop there. Lucy Craft Laney founded the Haynes Normal and Industrial Institute, at one time serving more than 900 students in Augusta, Georgia. Never marrying, Lucy would pour her life into the Institute to such a degree that she never left, living on campus even after a group of her students arranged a house for her across the street. 
By the time she died in 1933, she would leave an indelible mark on Georgia education. Sarah Griffith Stanley was a teacher at Haynes for a season, and so was Mary McLeod Bethune. So intense was Lucy's devotion to her beloved school that she is buried near its first site on Phillips Street. Lucy was born in April of 1854 to David and Louisa Laney. David and Louisa were both born into slavery. David's master allowed him to earn money by working odd jobs in town, a rarity for enslavers of the day. And the young man eventually saved up enough to purchase his freedom. He married Louisa when she was only 13 after purchasing her freedom as well. Louisa would continue to work for the Campbells who had enslaved her even once free and Lucy would credit her love of learning to the extensive library of the Campbells. David himself became a Presbyterian minister. Lucy was the seventh born of 10 children. Though not all of them survived into adulthood, she nevertheless grew up in a house full of people. The Campbells had taught Louisa to read and she passed this love of reading on to Lucy, making sure that her daughter was afforded every educational opportunity that arose. When the American Missionary Association arranged for a post-war school for emancipated black children in Macon, Georgia, Lucy was one of their first students. I love that Lucy's education was in part the result of other black educators who went out of their way to go down south and pass the baton. Lucy picked it up and ran with it. After Atlanta University was founded in 1865, she was part of the first graduating class at the tender age of 15. Afterwards, she attended the normal department for teacher training. In 1883, when Lucy was 29, the Board of Missions for Freedom, Freedmen, excuse me, convinced her to start a school in Augusta. While Lucy had close ties to Congregationalists as well as the Presbyterians who ran the mission board, she would most often receive money and support from the Presbyterian Church. Lucy rented a room for her very first school from Christ Presbyterian Church. She started with a mere five students, and by the end of the first year, that number had jumped to 75. By the end of the second year, that number had jumped to 200. Much of Lucy's work as head of school was to raise money, which she saw as missions work. And every time Lucy pursued space for her school to grow, the Lord blessed her endeavors. Once her student body of 200 had outgrown Christ Presbyterian Church, a white undertaker offered her the two-story house on Calhoun Street. Realizing that they would soon outgrow the two-story house, Lucy went to the General Assembly of the Northern Presbyterian Church in Minneapolis to solicit funding. Said one onlooker who watched Lucy speak, it was a novel sight to me. A young colored girl brought greetings from her people and besought our mission board for more schools. Mrs. F.E.H. Haynes, president of the Women's Department in the Presbyterian Church USA, was particularly encouraging to Lucy, impressed by the young woman's passion for her students. Mrs. Haynes would become a generous benefactor, and Lucy would, in fact, go on to name her school after her. By 1913, Lucy had gathered enough funds to build a school on Gwinnett Street. She had 34 faculty and 900 students when she opened Haynes Normal and Industrial Institute. Lucy helmed the school through hell and high water, literally in the case of the latter. Once, a flood cut the school off from the rest of the world for three days. Another time, there was an epidemic of malaria among her students, and a fire destroyed one of the dormitories. 
yet Lucy persisted in her cause, seemingly undaunted by every single calamity, and her work was sorely needed in Georgia. Sadie Iola Daniel, who wrote Women Builders while Lucy Craft Laney was still at the Haynes Institute, cites this. The state has more than 6 million Negroes with 36 and one half percent of illiteracy as compared with seven and eight tenths of percent of illiteracy among whites. Although the Negro group comprises 45 and one percent total of the population. Few of the Georgia cities have provided adequately for Negro education and rural school facilities for Negroes are still meager. A report of the Julius Rosenwald Fund shows that Georgia ranks 10th in the number of rural school buildings aided that foundation between 1913 and 1928. The state ranks 48th in provision for public education and 47th in public health work. Of the children who start school in Georgia, 50% never complete the fourth grade. Thus, Haynes Institute in Oasis of Knowledge in a Desert of Ignorance provides for the thirsty. Now I want you to think about that. And that is how far education, literacy, schooling, and reading went. From then to now. Think about those stats we just listened to about public education and how important it was for women, for black women, for black women of faith, for people of faith to take on the mission, the call, the purpose of educating black people beyond what the public systems could offer them. Now think about how much progress we made once public systems began to offer everybody education and then ponder how public funding is now being pulled from those same public schools that was offering education and equaling the playing field through education for black students. It is all tied together. We're gonna stop there and let's move on to Black Theology and Black Power, the 20th anniversary edition by James H. Cohn. Revolutionary action is a Christian, a priestly struggle. Camilo Torres. Because black theology is biblical theology seeking to create new value perspectives for the oppressed, it is revolutionary theology. It is a theology which confronts white society as the racist antichrist, communicating to the oppressor that nothing will be spared in the fight for freedom. It is this attitude which distinguishes it from white American theology and identifies it with the religionists of the third world. It says with Leroy Jones, fact, there is a racial struggle. Fact, any man had better realize what it means, why there is one. It is the result of more than a misunderstanding. Fact, people should love each other. Sounds like Reese Park at sundown. It has very little meaning 
to the world at large. The debate is over. There will be no more meetings between liberal religious whites and middle-class Negroes to discuss the status of race relations in their communities. Now, this was said in the 1960s, but here we are back at middle-class Black people discussing the status of race relations in their communities with liberal religious white people expecting things to change. They told you back in the 1960s, this tactic is a stall tactic. Black theology believes that the problem of racism will not be solved through talk, but through action. Therefore, its task is to carve out a revolutionary theology based on relevant involvement in the world of racism. The revolution which black theology advocates should not be confused with some popular uses of the word. When Billy Graham can speak of a need for a revolution, we clearly require a tighter definition of the term. Revolution is not merely a change of heart, but a radical black encounter with the structure of white racism with the full intention the full intention of destroying its menacing power. I mean, confronting white racists and saying, if it's a fight you want, I'm prepared to oblige you. This is what the black revolution means. It is important not to confuse protest with revolution. Revolution is more than protest. Protest merely calls attention to injustice. It is an act of defiance against what is conceived to be an established evil. It is the refusal to be silent in the presence of wrong to which others are accommodated. Social protest flings a gauntlet into the teeth of a suspect authority and challenges the principles upon which that authority claims to rest. It seems that the work of the traditional civil rights organization falls into this category. Though they changed laws, they were essentially movements which appealed to the conscience of white America. They were asking for black Americans to be included in the total structure of the white American way. Black power believes that implicit in the act of protest is the belief that change will be forthcoming once the masters are aware of the protesters' grievance. The very word connotes begging or supplicating to the, to the gods. In contrast, revolution sees every particular wrong as one more instance in a pattern which is be itself beyond rectification. Revolution aims at the substitution of a new system for one adjudged to be corrupt, rather than corrective adjustments within the existing system. I'm going to say that one more time because there are a lot of people who think they're a part of a revolution when they're really a part of a protest. Revolution sees that a system itself is beyond rectifying. It aims to substitute a new system for one that has been judged to be corrupt rather than trying to adjust the existing system. In other words, a revolution says it must all go. The power of revolution is coercive. The pre-Civil War black preachers were revolutionary 
in that they believed that the system itself was evil and consequently urged the enslaved to rebel against it. The very existence of the black church meant that men like Richard Allen and Absalom Jones were convinced that the evil of racism in the white church was beyond redemption. Just sit with that for a moment. Today, the black power movement is an expression of the same revolutionary zeal in the black community. It shuns protests and seeks to speak directly to the needs of the black community. Black power seeks to change the structure of the black community, its thought forms, what it values, and its culture. It tells black people to love themselves and by so doing confront white racism with a mode of behavior inimical to everything white. The revolutionary attitude of black theology stems not only from the need of black people to defend themselves in the presence of white oppression, but also from its identity with biblical theology. Like biblical theology, it affirms the absolute sovereignty of God over his creation. This means that ultimate allegiance belongs only to God. Therefore, black people must be taught not to be disturbed about revolution or civil disobedience if the law violates God's purpose for man, particularly the black man. The Christian man is obligated by a freedom grounded in the creator to break all laws which contradict human dignity. Through disobedience to the state, he affirms his allegiance to God as creator and his willingness to behave as if he believes it. Civil disobedience is a duty in a racist society. That is why Camilo Torres said, revolutionary action is a Christian, a priestly struggle. The biblical emphasis on the freedom of man also means that one cannot allow another to define his existence. If the biblical imaho day means anything, it certainly means that God has created man in such a way that man's own destiny is inseparable from his relationship to the creator. When man denies his freedom and the freedom of others, he denies God. To be for God by responding creatively to the Imaho Day means that man cannot allow others to make him an it. It is this fact that black rebellion, human and religious. It is this fact that makes black rebellion human and religious. If you're going to respond to being made in the image of God, you cannot allow others to make you an it. You cannot allow others to make you an it. I'm gonna say that one more time because somebody's gonna get it. You cannot allow others to make you an it. I'm going to identify the way in which the creator has made me. Because if I make myself an it, if I make myself unidentifiable, then that gives them the power to begin to dehumanize me. And some people are being tricked into making themselves an it. When black people affirm their freedom in God, they know 
that they cannot obey laws of oppression. By disobeying, they only say yes to God, but also to their own humanity and to the humanity of the white oppressor. I'm going to stop there. So let's have a conversation. We've got about 15 minutes. I have been seeing some really, really interesting things. <laughs> As these debates continue to rage on in the Christian community, especially on one hand, we have black people saying we we don't we need to throw away the white man's religion. I completely get that ideology. But what I will say is it's not accurate. It's not accurate. It's not even accurate to say, and I'm going to say this again because I keep seeing people hear it and teach it. It is not accurate to say that our ancestors bought into the white man's religion. We know more than we did 10, 15, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. We now have documentation that our ancestors, even the ones that were brought over unwillingly, that many of them already had a faith belief. So no one gave it to them. We don't give our ancestors enough credit for knowing that they were being lied to. I've also heard people say, well, our ancestors couldn't read. That is not true either. Maybe they couldn't read English, but many of them understood other languages like French and Portuguese and Dutch. <laughs> Even including their own native tongues. So we have to stop these myths about, oh, they, they couldn't read. So they just had to rely on what the slave master was telling them, no, that is not true. Okay. So people who are espousing these things, I'm going to need you to do a little bit more digging. I'm going to need you to do a little bit more reading, especially from historians and documentarians who now know that there were thousands of black believers that were being taken into captivity in enslavement and brought to the Americas. So they didn't come here with a faith that was thrust upon them. Many of them already had faith. Okay. So please, please. <laughs> I understand certain people are saying things because they want a certain narrative to go forth. But um, I'm going to need you to correct yourself. I'm going to need you to correct what you're teaching. Okay. Please do that because our ancestors were a whole lot smarter than what we give them credit for. Now, if you would like to join into the conversation, we are having that conversation on Instagram Live. If you are listening by Anchor or you are listening by YouTube, I want to thank you for your time and attention today. If you want to join our live conversation, Come on over right now to IG. Our page is Daring Dialogues. And let's talk. Let's have the conversation. I want to hear from you. I want to hear your feedback on today's readings. 
We talked about Lucy Craft, and we've read a little bit about what the true definition, what did the founder of Black theology, Black liberation theology, what did he intend for people to know about revolution and why revolution is not the same as protest? See you there. Again, if you are listening by the podcast, I want to thank you for your time and attention. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness. So continue to go out and be light.